Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, so much we could talk about. I want to focus, uh, I guess, my opening on what Brad Parscale from the Trump campaign said over the weekend in a tweet and other social media, uh, in the humble way the Trump campaign uh, always operates, said that they have built a Death Star and it's going to be fully operational this week. Of course, um, my family loves Star Wars. I'm sure like many of you do. And it's curious that you would refer to your campaign as the Death Star, given that it's the evil Sith and ultimately multiple Death Stars uh, blew up. Uh, But be that as it may, let's unpack that. What do they mean by the Death Star? Well, we're starting to see some um, signs of it. They're they're beginning their television advertising and digital advertising, really negative ads against Joe Biden for the first time in force. These so far seem to be centered on trying to suggest that somehow Joe Biden is a uh, a toady for China and is weak on China. You know, this fits into Trump's strategy of trying to blame the coronavirus and everything that's happened economically and health-wise since his terrible uh, plan and response on China. So, um, they mean that for sure. You know, they're starting to do a lot more online events. You know, they've released their app, which is actually a pretty good app. And I'd like to see, and I'm sure we will see the Biden campaign develop the kind of app that, that is um, that intuitive and uh, really brings people back and almost gamifies in, in some respects some of the activity. So, um, but I think the major thing they're talking about is they're just starting to spend their war chest on negative ads on, on Joe Biden. And, um, you know, I think negative ads are not going to compare with the reality people see all around them with lost jobs, lost wages, lost loved ones, um, and Trump's responsibility for that. But, uh, you know, negative ads, uh, you know, having written a bunch of them in my life, they can be effective. And I think so for all of you who are supporting Joe Biden, they are at a money deficit. They had a really good fundraising month in April. They just released that this week, uh, almost raised the same amount of money as Trump. So that's a great sign. Uh, but the cash on hand disparity is, is pretty pronounced. So uh, if you're thinking about giving Joe Biden 25 bucks, you can afford to do that or 250 bucks. Please do. They, they need to fight back. And you also can share content. So if, if you see a Trump negative ad and you see a response that Biden campaign put out or somebody else put out organically, you know, fire that into your social media feeds. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign, I think, is putting out some really compelling content around Trump's response on the coronavirus, the comparison in terms of character and empathy between the two of them. Share that. Uh, We shouldn't just sit back and say, that's a good ad. I hope they're putting the right kind of money behind it. We all can help those ads go further and reach more people. So I, I think the general election in many respects was delayed by the coronavirus. If, if the coronavirus was not going on, I think probably for the last 60 days, Joe Biden would be facing a historic fusillade from the Trump campaign. That was delayed by the coronavirus, but we're starting to see that now. So um, this is, uh, uh, you know, a dangerous time uh, if you're the Biden campaign and all of us, just because you're going to see the first 
real effort from the Trump campaign to try and drop Biden's numbers down or raise questions about him, not necessarily moving people into the Trump column, but maybe people who were leading against Trump act undecided. So uh, this is an important moment for the, the Biden campaign and all of us uh, to meet that uh, and make sure that uh, Biden doesn't get harmed too much uh, by this offensive. Uh, historically, we've seen that incumbent presidents uh, can do quite a number on their challengers. We did that to Romney. George W. Bush did that to John Kerry. Uh, Ronald Reagan did it to Mondale. Bill Clinton did it to Bob Dole. Uh, this is a different time because of the coronavirus. I, I think it's going to be harder for Trump to punch through because all people care about is when is my job going to come back? When is my unemployment going to run out? When is, can my small business reopen? When is it safe to go out in my community? And they're not sure about that. I, I think... Uh, in large measure because Trump's been so unstable. So uh, general elections joined. I'm really excited about our guest today, um, Eric Holder, former attorney general of the United States. I'm really excited to talk to Eric because of his background and what he's working on now. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things I think of great interest to all of you. Election protection, what the Department of Justice could be doing that they're not doing uh, to protect the vote, what we've seen lately from Attorney General Barr, just a complete disgrace uh, in Eric Holder's view on how Barr is operating is so different, not just from how Eric Holder has operated, but how attorneys general in this country have operated for decades, where their client was the people, not the president. Eric leads the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. He's doing such important work to make sure we have fair lines drawn in 2022. So we'll talk about that work. And Eric Holder, along with Caroline Kennedy, led our vice presidential vetting process and selection process back in 2008 for then Senator Obama. So we're going to talk to Eric about that process, what goes into it, the value it can provide somebody like Joe Biden, who wants as much information as possible about the people he's considering as our nation's next vice president. So I, I think this will be an interesting and, and wide ranging interview with Eric Holder. Eric Holder, thank you so much for being on Campaign HQ. Good to be with you, David. Always good to talk to you. Likewise. Well, a lot to go over. Uh, I want to talk about the election and redistricting and vice presidential selections. But I want to start with um, what's interesting to me is President Trump, really since the day he was inaugurated, has been was complaining that he wanted an attorney general who would serve him, just like you served Barack Obama. Now, I saw firsthand that you were serving the American people, uh, not the president's personal attorney. <laughs> but, you know, we're reminded again just in the, in the last few days that Trump has finally found, at least from my reading, um, kind of what he wanted, which is an attorney general who would do um, do his bidding. Um, and I just like you uh, as the nation's former attorney general to reflect a little bit. Uh, and I'm sure you think about all the great men and women who've worked in that department for years and decades uh, throughout law enforcement, just how it makes you feel. Well, I got to tell you, it's among the most disturbing things about a very disturbing administration. President Trump has indicated he was looking for a specific kind of lawyer to be his attorney general. Um, and has somehow mistakenly come to the conclusion that I was that kind of, uh, I would be, I was that kind of attorney general. Um, I served in the Justice Department for most of my career, and I certainly served six years as attorney general, always with the notion that my client was the American people, not the President of the United States. Uh, president Trump wants an attorney general. In fact, he has an attorney general who thinks that his client is the President. Um, and in that pursuit of protecting um, the client, the president has run roughshod over uh, the rule of law and has put the interests of the president um, above those things that attorneys general 
um, always value the most, always um, fight the most for. You know, his um, attacks, President Trump's attacks uh, on the Justice Department, on the FBI, even on the intelligence community, are the kinds of things that an attorney general should be pushing back on, not facilitating. And uh, it is one of the things that really concerns me most about what we're going to be left with at the conclusion of the the Trump years. We will have um, the law enforcement community that has been attacked by this president over the course of these four years. Um, And the impact of that is not only in the moment, um, I suspect, I I fear that it will have a a long-lasting impact. It will be something from which um, the law enforcement community will have to um, have to recover. And that's just not the way it should be. Um, an attorney general should certainly be doing all that he can, all that she can, uh, to push back on a president who's intent on doing those kinds of things uh, to the people who the uh, attorney general um, is supposed to lead and is supposed to defend. So like so many issues, even if Trump were to lose this election, uh, it's not like things magically get better. We're going to have a lot of digging out to do. What will it take uh, in a Joe Biden administration to begin to build back confidence and independence? Uh, I'd assume you'd also worried about both recruiting and retention of key personnel. Talk a little bit about that job. Uh, And, um, you know, it's not like we get election results and all of a sudden things get better. Yeah, no, it, it'll take some time. You know, um, I guess, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, we've had this experience before. Um, Edward Levy uh, came in as attorney general, and he rebuilt the Justice Department after Watergate, after John Mitchell, after Richard Kleindienst had their, um, their, their problems. And so there is, you need to find somebody um, who, is, who knows about the department, who is familiar with how the department operates, uh, and who also is going to have the courage, the guts, to make the necessary changes and to, you know, push aside um, those people who want to, who, who don't understand the need for um, rebuilding the department, who will think that uh, things can simply go on. You know, this is going to really require an intense, focused effort on making sure that the department gets back to its moorings, that the people in the department understand that the rule of law is paramount, that political decisions um, are not a part of what happens in the Justice Department. And then you've got to hire people um, to make sure that the people you're bringing into the department um, share those views. I actually think that the people who remain in the department um, are overwhelmingly going to be happy to see a new attorney general, a new administration. I suspect recruiting will um, go up. My guess is that it has probably gone down over these last couple of years, people will want to come back to, um, to the department, as I did. I, I, you know, I graduated from law school, came into the department through the Attorney General's Honors Program. I bet the applications will soar uh, with President Biden and with his, uh, with his new Attorney General. So uh, rule of law, like so many issues, is literally on the ballot uh, this November 3rd. And, um, you know, if, if Donald Trump were to serve eight years, um, you know, this country may not be recognizable. Uh, but you know, one of the preconditions to winning the election and bringing about change is making sure we do have fair elections. Now, when you served as attorney general, uh, you know, as a principal, uh, you and your department uh, really tried to make it uh, as fair as possible within legal bounds for people to register uh, and participate in elections. So, um, and, and a lot of this resides at the state level, but I'm just, as you look at uh, the election that's upcoming at the federal level, what concerns you the most 
Um, and, you know, this can be both with your former attorney general hat on, and we're going to talk about your great work you're doing around districting later, but just generally what gives you the most concern uh, and what can we do to fight back? Well, I tell you, um, David, my if you'd asked me this question, I guess, three months or so ago, I would have answered this way, which is to say that I'm concerned about the voter suppression um, measures that Republican Republicans have used in a number of states around the country following the Shelby County decision where the Supreme Court um, gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the pearl of the civil rights movement, um, gutted the 65 Voting Rights Act, and states then put into place these unnecessary photo ID laws. Um, they engaged in, um, in purging of, um, of voter rolls, did a whole variety of things to make it more difficult for people who Republicans believe um, will vote Democratic, uh, people of color, young people, uh, poor people, try to keep them away from the polls. They, in essence, wanted to select who their voters would be. If you'd asked me that question, as I said, two, three months ago, that's how I would have answered it. Now, I have that continuing concern that I've just outlined, but now I'm also concerned about the, um, the health issues that potentially could affect um, the vote in November. We saw in Wisconsin um, just, I guess, two, three weeks or so ago where Republicans insisted that in the, in the height of a pandemic that people not be allowed um, to vote at home to the degree that people wanted to. And as a result, we had people who had to line up in a pandemic to cast a ballot. We now have, I guess, numbers that show 50, 60 people uh, who contracted the, the virus as a result of having to stand in lines or poll workers who, had to, who were there um, um, helping people cast a ballot. Uh, so I'm worried about that now. Um, that we will not have what everybody supports. And, and this is something that polls, you know, off the charts. The American people say, well, you mean I can vote at home, I can vote by mail, as opposed to having to go out of my house in the middle of a pandemic. And Republicans and President Trump has said that he thinks that if we do that, somehow, some way, Republicans will not do as well um, at the ballot. And that's inconsistent with uh, the, the studies but they are going to oppose that. And that's, I think, something that worries me a great deal. Um, I, I think that we need to make it as easy as possible, as healthy as we can, for people to exercise their franchise um, in November by le letting people have the choice between voting at home or if you decide that you want to go um, and vote at the polls, make sure that the polls um, are as, as healthy, as safe as they, as they can be. And it's something that should be a nonpartisan issue, but one that unfortunately... Um, Trump and the Republicans are yet again making a, making a partisan matter. I'm curious, and the answer might be not a lot, but, um, you know, if you were serving as attorney general during a pandemic and we had these same issues that you just raised, what could the Department of Justice do? Not on your first set of concerns, which, you know, are an ongoing battle that you've been a champion of, but on we've got a pandemic, there's clearly health concerns, we need to make it, you know, not the exclusive option, but make it uh, so that anybody who wants to vote by mail can vote. What could a DOJ that was focused on voter participation do? Yeah, the, the department, I think, can actually play a pretty significant role. There are um, lawsuits that have been brought, um, some brought by organizations connected to uh, um, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee that I am the chair of, brought lawsuits in, in Texas and in North Carolina to make available the option of um, voting by mail, voting at home. And I like to call it voting at home because that's really what it is, uh, to make available voting at home. The Justice Department could join those lawsuits um, and put briefs into, in support, file briefs in support of those lawsuits. 
let courts know around the country that the United States Department of Justice uh, is siding with plaintiffs in those case, cases against um, you know, state uh, voting authorities or whoever the defendant is in, in, in those particular cases. So I, I think, and then using the bully pulpit as Attorney General of the United States uh, and talking about the need for uh, changes in our, our electoral system to allow people to vote in a safe and healthy environment. So I think that the, um, an attorney general who was concerned um, could use the weight of the Justice Department in a very, uh, very significant way. What a different world that would be. Uh, unfortunately, we either get silence or uh, malfeasance. Um, so let's talk about your work. Well, I'm before we get into to redistricting, you know, you have some experience about this. When I get asked people uh, from people who are very concerned about this from an electoral college standpoint, um, I do point out that in the states that are likely to determine the presidency, um, they all have vote-by-mail options. Some of the systems in the states are better than others, but even Pennsylvania for the first time now allows no excuse absentee. Uh, we do have governors in, in those three Midwestern states. We have a, a Democratic governor in North Carolina, not to be partisan about it, but sadly in our politics today, that generally denotes that you're in favor of voter participation <laughs> for everybody. Uh, what what I'm just curious, as you look at the states, which you now have a great deal of um, expertise in because of your redistricting work, um, you know, for me, I'm a mixed mind, which I'm worried about what this could mean in Florida, a little less worried about what it could mean in Arizona. Some confidence, not not a huge amount, but because we do have Democratic secretaries of states in some of those states, Democratic governors in all of them. So it's kind of a mixed bag. So speak to that a little bit in terms of giving people maybe not 100 percent confidence, but at least as it relates to the presidential race. Now, a bunch of states where you're trying to win state legislative races, um, where this is going to be a concern. Yeah, I mean, it really is a mixed bag. There are... Um some states that make voting at home um, something that's relatively easy to do. Um, but even there, we will have voting at home to a degree that we have not seen before. And states need um, financial assistance to prepare for that. Um, you know, in, in Texas, you can vote at home if you're over 65, but not if you're 64 and a half. We have filed a lawsuit there to say, well, that's age discrimination, and, and that violates the 26th Amendment to the Constitution. Um, in a lot of states, you see the needs for the need for you know signature matches. Um, you don't have um, you know postage already included in what is sent to to voters. There's a whole variety of things that um, have to be overcome. But it's interesting. Um, it is, as you say, a mixed bag. And in some states, um, the, the path to getting us to the point where having people vote the way they want, either in person or through the mails, will be relatively simple. Although Simple in, in, in theory, but maybe hard in the actuality, where, again, they're going to need resources, um, you know, additional amounts of money. And that's why I think it's important that Congress, um, you know, put in hopefully maybe the next stimulus bill, money that can be used by um, the states to facilitate these kinds of uh, these, these new kinds of way, new kinds of way of, uh, of voting. Um, it's also interesting that you look at the Republican, some of the Republican state officials uh, around the country, they're very familiar with vote at home. And in fact, some of them think that voting at home actually helps them. You look in Florida. Um, Republicans have used voting at home there because they think it is something they stand for because it's something they think that will, will help them. Um, and that is true maybe in other states as well. So it really is kind of a mixed bag. But I, I suspect, I, I fear that the president's opposition to it, his very vocal um, opposition to it, 
might even might change even those Republicans who are, are inclined to think either by experience um, or just almost on a, on a moral basis think that it's, it's the right thing to do. They'll be afraid, as they've been so afraid in so many other ways, to go against, um, against this president and will put up unnecessary barriers to, uh, to the implementation of, uh, of this new way of doing things. Ironic that he's an absentee ballot voter himself. That's, that's the amazing thing. I mean, he says it's bad, it's awful. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's the way I vote. It's like, you know, Casablanca. I'm against gambling. I'm, well, here you're winning, sir. You know? Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So, um... You are you could have done a lot of things with with a good chunk of your time in life, and and you've chose. Uh, uh, we should all be grateful for this to devote a lot of your time to chairing the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Uh, I think a lot of people listening do uh, remember that every ten years we uh, we work on the congressional district lines and the state legislative lines coming out of the census. So in twenty twenty two. Um, we will have new congressional district maps uh, and new state legislative districts all over the country. So tell people how this election uh, in 2020 will impact having the best possible redistricting scenario for the Democratic Party in 2022. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, we have a census every 10 years. That's what's that's happening now in 2020. Uh, and then in 2021, 2021, on the basis of the census, um, the states uh, redraw the lines, the legislative, the electoral lines. Um, the election in 2020 is an important election. I mean, it's obviously when it comes to the presidency, it is an existential election. We always say that presidential elections matter. This one matters to a degree uh, that is just, you know, almost un- unfathomable. It is an existential election. But there are really important elections um, down ballot. I hate to even to use that term, down ballot. Somehow makes them seem like they're less important, but they're just... They're very, very important elections. The people who we select in 2020 will be the state legislators, among others, um, who will serve and make decisions about how the lines should be drawn in 2021. It's why, since we put uh, the NDRC together in 2017, we have focused on um, state races. Off your elections in 2017, um, regular elections in 2018, off your elections in 2019, all so that we would put in place people committed to a fair process in 2021 and not replicate what happened in 2011 when the Republicans really went to town and gerrymandered um, to a degree that Princeton did a study and said to a degree that we've not seen in the last half century. I have to say that they focused on the whole question of um, redistricting and and did did really successful gerrymandering in 2011 
when Democrats didn't really focus as no, enough attention um, on that process. We were determined to make sure that come 2021 that we were as focused um, as the Republicans, way more focused than we were um, in 2011, also that we would have a fair process. Because here's the deal. I don't think, you know, I don't, I'm not here to gerrymander as head of the NDRC. I'm not here to gerrymander for, for Democrats. I think if it's a fair process, progressives and Democrats will do just fine. Republicans are the ones who want to pick their voters. Uh, I, I just want to have as many people vote as is possible, have fair lines that are drawn, and have legislators uh, who will stand by the people and not the, uh, not the special interests. Well, you, you reflect back on 2011 and 2012. Uh, the Republicans had a, a tremendous victory in 2010. And so, you know, that wasn't just about that night or that year, right? We lived with that for the rest of the decade. So um, you're focused, uh, you know, in a lot of places. But talk about a few of the states that you think are going to be most critical to the redistricting picture. Um, and, and how, you know, if you've got thoughts about how the average person listening who may be helping Joe Biden or getting involved in a Senate race, what they might be able to do to help. Yeah, I mean, the, um, we have some target states. I mean, Texas, for instance, is, is, is a critical state. Um, the Democrats need to win nine states in the state House of Representatives in Texas. If that were the case, we would then be in the majority uh, in the Texas State House, and we would have one of the three seats at the table when it comes to the redistricting. Three seats are occupied by the governor, the state um, House of Representatives, and the state Senate. If we have one of those three, it means that the Republicans can't, they don't have trifecta control, as they had in many places in 2011, where they can just run the table and just draw the lines in the way that, uh, the way that they want. There have, there have to be compromises at a minimum if the Democrats have at least one of those three, of those three seats. So Texas is an important state. Uh, Florida is an important state. Georgia is an important state. North Carolina is an important state. And in North Carolina, we have been successful in going through the courts to make sure that the line drawing process is more fair than it was in 2011. Wisconsin is among the most gerrymandered states in the country. There, Republicans have uh, gotten less than 50 percent of the vote overall for the state legislature and yet control about two-thirds of the seats. And that has real-world consequences. It was the Republican gerrymandered legislature in Wisconsin that forced people into the streets to vote two, three weeks ago against the wishes of the Democratic governor. People had to risk their health because the Republican legislature would not move the election as the Democratic governor wanted to do. So there are real-world consequences um, to these, these gerrymandered legislatures. So is your view that that's a good tour of the country and, and for folks who live in those states uh, would encourage you to get involved in those local races if you haven't. Um, is your view, Eric, that what we're trying to do here is ensure fairness? You hear some Democrats say, let's let's win as many places as we can and do exactly what they did. How do you respond to that? Well, first off, that's not what the NDRC is about. I didn't sign up to uh, do something improper for Democrats in the same way that something was inappropriately done for, um, for, uh, for Republicans. And I think that, you know, progressives and Democrats need to understand that, you know, we're right on the issues and that if we have a fair process, we will do just fine. We don't have to gerrymander. Uh, and I will say that, you know, in New Jersey, Democrats there um, wanted to use the power that they had, a, a Democratic trifecta, both houses in the legislature, Democratic governor, wanted to... Um, draw the lines or do things in, that in such a way that would allow them to gerrymander very publicly. 
along with the, uh, with the governor there, Phil Murphy, said, no, this is not something that we as a party should stand for. And the legislators there who were uh, trying to do that backed down. And so that's, I think, we should come from a moral, the moral high ground, not, not see that, because I don't think we have to see that to be, um, to be successful and to have into the, put into the system the fairness that we want. And if people want to be involved um, in this effort, I would urge them to go to allonthelineorg that's allonthelineorg where um, citizens can sign up and help us in this, uh, in this effort. That is our advocacy um, component of the NDRC. You go to allonthelineorg give us your name, number, and we'll tell you ways in which you can help us in this fight for um, a fair redistricting process. I'm curious, you know, way back when I was, uh, you know, very young, uh, we still had things like mimeograph machines and faxes. I was working as the legislative director at the Iowa Democratic Party. And Iowa back then was the first state, so this is 1991, had computer-drawn maps um, uh, that took, you know, maybe not all the politics, but a lot of the politics out. Do you see a day, I don't know if it's 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, where we have a lot of states doing it in that impartial way? Or do you think that we're just going to be living with election results driving um, kind of a decade's worth of policy decisions at the state and federal level? You know, I'm actually, that's a really good question, David. And I'm actually optimistic um, because as people have become more aware of the uh, problems, the the perils, uh, the negative things that flow from gerrymandering, as people's consciousness has been raised about um, redistricting and about how bad redistricting, gerrymandering, uh, leads to, you know, inappropriate, bad results. People have come on board and say, you know, this is something that we care about. Um, every time we have pushed a ballot initiative that would make the system more fair, where, for instance, we put in place these independent commissions, um, Republicans, Democrats, independents all support them. We put them in place in Michigan, Utah, Colorado, Missouri, um, and in really usually with overwhelming support, like, like over 60% of the vote. And I'm hopeful that as people's consciousness is raised and remains raised, that over time, um, the politicians who want to keep picking their voters will simply be overwhelmed by the desires of the people. Uh, you know, it, it, when we started this, people said, well, you know, gerrymandering, that's kind of wonky, you know, kind of, it's all political, so who, who's going to care about it? And as we've talked about this over these last three years, People have come to understand that if you care about health care, if you care about climate, if you care about the right to choose, if you care about voter protection, if you care about um, criminal justice reform, all those things are intimately, inextricably bound up um, with a fair redistricting process. And so we say, all right, you know, redistricting, gerrymandering is kind of wonky. Well, if you care about a woman's right to choose, you need to care about who is in the state legislature, who's in the state legislature, and you need to be fighting. Um, at that, for those down ballot races, and I, so I think people are becoming are more aware um, than they were in the past, and that's why I think we will, in the future, be in a much better place than uh, than we have been. Now, the ballot initiative strategy has been brilliant. Um, how much of a problem is the recent Supreme Court decision around redistricting for the effort? Yeah, um, you know, the Supreme Court really blew it. Um, in that case, in Ruchka, um, and made a determination that partisan gerrymandering cases could not be brought in federal court. This is the same Supreme Court that said that, um, you know, Citizens United were going to have unlimited amounts of money, same Supreme Court that gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act. That suite of cases, that trio of cases 
is something that history will not look kindly upon and may define um, how the Roberts Court is, is viewed. And I think, you know, the justices should keep that in mind. You know, we look back now from those early 20th century cases uh, where the Supreme Court, in essence, tried to undo the New Deal. And that is seen as a very dark uh, chapter in the Supreme Court's history. I think they will look at these three cases in the 21st century and uh, have, have that, that same view. The, you know, the decision by the court, 5-4, um, you know, Republicans against Democrats, conservatives against liberals, um, to not open the courts to partisan gerrymandering um, cases made it difficult. Um, if we had a national standard, um, a lot of the work that we're doing would have been a lot easier um, to bring to a successful conclusion. But it doesn't mean that we can't bring partisan gerrymandering cases. We now have to bring them in the state courts using the state constitutions, relying on the state Supreme Courts. And we've done that successfully um, in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, and we'll bring other lawsuits in other, other states. So it means that instead of doing something relatively quickly, um, we have to slog our way, you know, state by state using each state's constitution. But we can still bring, um, you know, partisan gerrymandering cases. We just have to use the state courts. We can still bring racial gerrymandering cases, however, in the federal courts. This Supreme Court has still said that those cases are still cognizable in the federal system. Well, deeply frustrating, and it's made the, the you know, prospect of success in as many places as we want to harder. But, you know, we just have to organize and fight our way through it. So, Eric, there's so many places where we think about the stakes in this election, obviously climate change, health care, our relationship with our allies. There's so many. We, we started this discussion talking about um, the rule of law. There's so many issues uh, within areas that you have unique um, perspective on. But I'm curious, just staying on the court, if you could. Um, no guarantee of this, but if, if Trump were to win a second term, it's not crazy to think he, it might end up being a 6-3 or 7-2 court. Speak from your experience what that could mean for the country, uh, really for generations. Yeah, I mean, that is something that Democrats and progressives need to understand. Um, the Supreme Court is on the ballot this year. If you end up with uh, another term of Donald Trump uh, and Mitch McConnell at, uh, at the helm in, in the Senate, you will end up with a court that is 6-3 um, at a minimum, uh, maybe 7-2. And that would put in place a, an ideological um, conservative court for maybe the next 20, 30 years. Um, we have seen in the judicial selections that um, Trump has, has made and that McConnell has gotten through, they put on ideologues, overwhelmingly young white men um, who are true believers. Um, many of them, at least nine, ten of them, I guess, rated unqualified by the American Bar Association in the Obama years, over the course of eight years, not one judge was deemed to be um, unqualified. Um, and you will put at risk all the progress we have made as a nation when it comes to um, gender issues, when it comes to racial issues, when it comes to economic fairness. There's a whole variety of issues that um, this new emboldened um, Supreme Court would have to come to grapple with and would come up with decisions that, again, I think are inconsistent with where um, the American people are. This is a nation that is, I think, on the verge of a, a progressive um, era. 
and this court would stand in the way of allowing the the, uh, the American people uh, to get to that uh, desired place. In the same way, as I said before, in the early 20th century, uh, a Supreme Court was doing all that it could to stop the dawning of that progressive era, the New Deal. Um, this court, I think, will do uh, a new court, assuming that Donald Trump is elected, um, that new 6-3-7-2 court um, would do much the same things that the Supreme Court did in the early part of the 20th century. That's such great and important perspective, Eric. I mean, what that leads us to is if, even if you, if we lose this election and then we have another 20 years of great elections, um, you know, there's almost a lid on the progress that we can make. Um, and so it just, it, it, you know, I, I think that that is such a, um, a startling call for activism in this election because um, we cannot, uh, you know, as a country, we're going to not make the progress we need to. So, uh, Eric, uh, speaking of this election, so you and I first started working closely together back in 2008. You and Caroline Kennedy graciously uh, agreed uh, to take on leadership of the vetting process for President Obama as he went about deciding who he'd choose as his vice president. Uh, that ended up being Joe Biden. Talk to people a little bit about just what that process is like. And maybe it's changed, uh, you know, in 12 years, but the types of things, and you obviously had a lot of lawyers and other assets uh, working under you, but but what you're trying to do, so, so Vice President Biden's team right now, the work they're doing, and what does that lead up to uh, to serve him properly so he can make the best decision that he can? Yeah, I'm sure that they will come up with a process similar to the one that we um, worked on, you and I worked on together, that was um, really exhaustive. Um, you, you get candidates, you'll, you'll get, start off maybe, I don't know, 15 candidates or so. Um, you then do what are called records, public records checks uh, to see, you know, just on the basis of things that are, are, are public, um, whether or not there are any problems with the, those candidates. Um, we had lawyers at my law firm uh, really do, again, exhaustive, really exhaustive public records check. Came down to, I guess, 12 people or something like along those lines. Um, then get the go-ahead from the candidate, contact those 12 people. Um, some of them will say, you know, they want to be considered. Some will say they um, do not. You then go to the next round of, uh, of records checks, and there you use doctors uh, to check on medical and, and, and mental things. You use um, accountants to go through um, bank records and tax returns. Lawyers are asking more um, intimate questions of the, uh, of the candidates, looking at their family histories, looking at what their spouses have done, what their kids um, have done. Um, by the time it comes down to that last group of three, four people, these are probably some of the most examined people um, on the planet. I think, interestingly, probably more um, examined than maybe the presidential um, candidate. Oh, I very much agree with that. I very much agree with that. Yeah, yeah. and so we, um, you know, Caroline and I, along with, uh, you know, a, a multitude of, of lawyers um, and accountants and, and doctors, um, you know, went through a, a whole bunch of things w with regard to the candidates who were being considered by, uh, by then-Senator um, Obama. And uh, it came down to, you know, to three people who um, we interviewed and he considered, and he ultimately made the choice that he, good choice, that he wanted to go with, um, with Senator, then Senator and now former Vice President Biden. And I think having gone through the process, uh, I think this is an interesting thing for, um, for Vice President Biden. My guess would be that he'll try to replicate um, that which we did back in, in 2008 and maybe add some wrinkles to it that, um, 
that he thinks are appropriate. But I hope he'll look for, you know, people who are um, going to be ready to to govern if, if necessary, um, people who will obviously share his worldview, people he, who he is compatible with. Um, that once they have gone through the process, you can pretty much rest, be rest assured that there are no skeletons in, in their closets. Then it becomes a question of, of governing and, um, and, and worldviews. Yeah, I always feel like I'm pouring cold water on people's hopes because I get asked this question almost every day by somebody about, well, th- this selection has to be about who helps you in the campaign. And I always say, well, that's actually um, at the end of the list. Like you don't want to pick somebody who's going to hurt you. Yeah. But this is about if you win, uh, who do you want as your partner? Some of that's chemistry. Some of it's background. You know, right. it's not a warm bucket of spit any job. So it's also anymore. Like, can you handle tough projects on the world stage or with Congress? So and if I recall, you know, in 2008, I mean, that's the kind of discussions you and Caroline would have with, with President Obama. Obviously, you, you did vetting. And so that information was important. But but you were also counselors. And it was the campaign was secondary. People never believe that because they think everything's about politics. Right. But that's that's how it went down. That's exactly right. I mean, we had uh, our first meeting was in Chicago, and um, then Senator Obama sat us down and said, this is what I'm looking for, you know, compatibility, um, worldview. Um, give me the, the potential uh, vice president's views on, you know, a number of, of issues. I did not once hear, um, you know, in all the interactions that we had thereafter, the notion that this person would help us with a particular state's electoral votes or anything like that. Um, that, you know, I guess that's part of the process, but it was something that was not uh, a primary focus during the process. It really was about um, having somebody who would be a good partner uh, and who could be a potential successor. And that was something that, you know, the young, and very fit um, Barack Obama even thought about. I mean, we had conversations about that. Is this a person, you know, the person who I select? Is that a person who would be able to... Um, to, to govern if something were to happen to me. I mean, we've been pretty fortunate as a nation. You know, we lost Roosevelt and we got Truman. Uh, we lost John Kennedy and we got Johnson. Uh, we lost Nixon and we got Gerald Ford, you know. And, you know, uh, he didn't win re-election, but I think that for what he was called upon to do in those, those couple of years, that he was, a, he was a, a, good, a good choice. Now, we've been unfortunate at times. You know, after Lincoln, we got Andrew Johnson. And so this is, um, this is a very important um, process that uh, Joe Biden will go through. Um, this is a very consequential thing that he will go through. Um, hopefully nothing happens in terms of succession, but I watched um, Joe Biden interact with uh, Barack Obama. And just in governing, the person you choose as your vice president um, can help or can be um, a hindrance. It's clear that um, Joe Biden was, was a help to Barack Obama. Um, I, I saw them, you know, talk about things, disagree with things uh, in the Situation Room, and then close the doors and go into the Oval Office. Um, and then they spoke with one voice once the uh, decision was made. And so you want to have somebody, again, who's compatible um, and who will be a team player. So it's, um, it will be an interesting, it's an interesting process, and it will be interesting to see who um, Vice President Biden decides to put in the vice presidency. Yeah, no, it's very helpful historical perspective and also your perspective on their partnership. Yeah, it's interesting, Eric. Um, I get asked a lot by people who say, well, 
this vetting, I mean, these people have run for office, so they've been vetted. Now, to your point about president, I mean, presidential candidates are vetted in a different way. I mean, they're on Broadway with the, with the brightest lights and um, under kind of a proctological exam. But the types of records you're talking about uh, aren't uh, usually public. And so, uh, I, you know, without naming names, both in terms of our process, but also historically, there are people who don't make it through the vetting process just because stuff might have not come up in their, you know, prior races. And, and this is, this is um, I think it's good for for um, both the, you know, in this case, Vice President Biden and then Barack Obama to have all the information. But it is a grueling process uh, that these people have, you know, it's grueling for you. You were working literally around the clock for months, but grueling for them as well, right? Yeah. And they're nervous a little bit, like what's going to what's come up, right? Yeah, no, it's interesting because there are people, I know it certainly happened in 2008. I know that it's already happened at least once in this current process where somebody was approached uh, to be considered for the vice presidency, and they took themselves out once they heard what the process was going to entail. So we had people in 2008 who decided not to get into the process. We also had people who decided they would be engaged in the process and then who um, were not considered or were pushed out of the process as a result of the investigations um, that we did. Uh, we looked at, again, you know, finances, um, things that they had written, things in their earlier life, things that their spouse had done, things that their siblings, things that their children had done, you know, a variety of, of reasons why a, a person would not be um, a good choice for uh, for vice president. That's such an important process. Um, I'm curious, last question for you, just as you think back at, at 08, what happened on the other side? You know, Palin was was not somebody who was in the the core group that they vetted to the same degree you're talking about. I mean, I think she was on a list, but but that's what's interesting about that, right? Is you really don't want any surprises here because I don't think uh, your choice really helps you in the campaign necessarily, but it can hurt you. Um, and in that case, you know, because she was a you know a wild card, they just didn't have all the information right to assess the downsides. No, I think that's right. I I think it's pretty clear. Um, you know, that she did not go through the same process um, that we put um, our potential vice presidents through, that we put um, ultimate choice Joe Biden through. Uh, I think if you had, she had gone through that process, my guess would be that she would not have survived it and would not have been the choice of, uh, you know, Senator, Senator McCain. In fact, I saw, I've seen published reports that um, the people who had done uh, the vetting of other people who ultimately for whatever reason, were not chosen, um, complained about the fact on the Republican side, complained about the fact that they did not have the opportunity to vet um, right. to vet Sarah Palin. And, you know, she was, uh, that was kind of a lightning bolt, and it, you know, it electrified people for a couple of weeks until, you know, a thing started to come out, until you started to see her uh, on the campaign trail, a lot of which would have been predictable on the basis of the kind of thorough vetting um, that I know People on the Republican side, you know, were capable of doing, and that which we um, that which we did. So, yeah, you don't want to have somebody um, who will surprise you and who will hurt you. Um, you want to have somebody again who will, you know, share your worldview, share your governing um, philosophy, uh, and who will be able to get through all the traps that um, are a necessary part of the um, of the vetting process. Yeah, well, you remember, yeah, those couple of weeks, you know, if you you probably remember this, we in the Obama campaign were considered about the dumbest people in political history. We were going to lose the election and yeah. uh, McCain was sailing to victory. But, uh, you know, uh, interesting lesson to, to have some patience in how we view these things as well. Well, Eric, uh, really fun to talk to you about a whole range of subjects uh, that are 
both uh, important for this election, but also talking to you about some of the issues that are to define the next few decades in our country's history. So thank you for your leadership, as always, staying on the scene and, and fighting the good fight. All right. Well, thanks to you, Dave. It's always great to talk to you. Um, you're one of those people who made uh, Barack Obama possible, and the nation needs to thank you. Uh, we certainly miss those eight years, and it's uh, it's time for us to get back to uh, to regular order here in this country. So everybody get out there and vote. Everybody get out there and work for um, this new progressive era and join us at allonthelineum.org. Thanks so much for having me, David. Thanks, Eric. Good luck. Well, I want to thank Eric Holder. We really kind of took a tour around a lot of subjects there. Really what struck me is uh, Eric talking. Well, so much struck me about the conversation, but if I wanted to center on one thing, um, you know, it was really Eric talking about the damage that would be done if Trump gets another four years and the Supreme Court ends up being 6-3 or 7-2, all the other judiciary appointments he would make connected to the fact that uh, Trump and, and his current attorney general, the rule of law is a foreign concept to them. You put all that together and it's really scary and, and should make us understand that we have to win this election. And there is a scenario where we lose this election and somehow we have a great 2022 and 2024 and 2026 and 2028. Unlikely we'd have four great elections, but even if we did, if you've got the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court in a Trump second term, you know, kind of almost putting a lid on all the progress that can be happening legislatively at the federal level and even the state level, you know, this country is, is going to be so much poorer for that. And so this election, we already know how it's important it is, but I think listening to Eric Holder, there's no do-overs here. If we don't win this election, the damage that will be done from a conservative judiciary, we have one or two more Kavanaugh's at the Supreme Court and scattered all throughout the land. No, no matter how many elections we win in, in this decade and the next decade, uh, we're not gonna really realize the progress and potential we need to. So uh, once again, Eric did a great job of pointing out the stakes of this election. So thank you for tuning in and look forward to seeing you next week.